It all started with a very simple idea. Tell the stories of how successful middle market CEOs made it to the corner office. I'm Brand Handley, founder and managing director of Resource Options International, or ROI. We're the USA's premier executive search firm focused exclusively on empowering middle market companies to attract, hire, and retain A players while transforming top executives' careers and lives. ROI's Into the Corner office is dedicated to discovering how middle market CEOs advance their career, and we're making these remarkable and sometimes quite unbelievable stories available to you for the very first time. Listen and learn about the challenges they've overcome, the interesting people they've met along the way, and the lessons learned that steered these executives' unique journey into a middle market corner office of their own. I know you enjoy these CEO stories as much as I've enjoyed recording them. So thank you for listening today. And if you like what you've heard, rate us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm looking forward to you joining me on the next great middle market CEO adventure into the corner office. Today, my guest is Stephen Sashin, CEO and founder of Feel the World and its Zero Shoes. Steven's a serial entrepreneur who has never had a job. He's a former stand-up comic and award-winning screenwriter and a competitive sprinter, one of the fastest men over 55 in the country, and maybe the fastest 55-plus Jew in the world. He and his wife, Lena Phoenix, co-founded the footwear company Zero Shoes, creating a movement movement which has helped hundreds of thousands of people live life feet first with happy, healthy, strong feet in addictively comfortable footwear. Stephen and Lena also appeared on Shark Tank, where they turned down a $400,000 offer from Kevin O'Leary. Stephen Sashin, welcome into the corner office. Thanks. I need to update that because I just turned 60 uh, a couple of weeks ago. So. Oh my gosh. Yeah. All right. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, listen, we always like to start off with the early days, Stephen, and hear a little bit about how things uh, got started for you. Tell us a little bit about your early family life, where you grew up, brothers and sisters, mom and dad. Well, when a mommy loves a daddy very much, mm. uh, you need to go back that far. Um, <laughs> so I, I, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I grew up outside of DC with entrepreneurial parents. My father was a mm. dentist, had his own, started and had his own practice. Right. My mom, like me, I don't think she ever had it. Well, no, she had jobs, but she did a lot of consulting. She yeah. started a couple of businesses. She ended up, um, her last thing, she started a promotional product business. Um, I have a younger sister who bought that business. Oh, so cool. my sister and I, we were, it's funny, we were never really close as children, but we fundamentally ended up in the same world. She's a, we're both professional marketers. Yeah, uh, and perfect. it's literally, we've become very good friends in the last 20 years. Is I think once we've been a bit of an age gap between the two of you? Uh, just three, two and a half years. Yeah. But I think once we re- got to be adults and, um, and frankly, she wasn't having to follow in. I don't know if if the word is better word is footsteps or wake footsteps or wake, but right. um, but apparently I left a kind of big wake in high school junior high and high school that she did right. not enjoy trying yeah. to surf over, and so once we got past that, um, she's just a wonderful, brilliant human being, and and we just ha- she's got her own little biz, I've got my biz, um, and uh, entrepreneurial things. Um, I vividly remember, um, you know, I God, I just had a flashback. Did you ever get? Um, uh, like I'm trying to think of what these magazines were that would have like cartoons or comic books that would have all these things in the back, like ways of making a hundred dollars a day. Yeah. I, I would respond to those. I remember, oh, I just, right. yeah. yeah, I remember one of those was, um, metal social security cards. So you'd, <laughs> you'd be able to sell these ideas of like an indestructible social security card. And I remember getting the samples and thinking, yeah, that's not going to happen. So, um, 
or I, I, my dad had a lot of shoes. And so I got 25 cents for polishing shoes, 50 cents for the boots. It's amazing how often those things needed to be polished. Now you said both your parents were entrepreneurs. Was that, you know, kind of a topic of discussion? You remember growing up or any kind of early lessons or learnings that you Um, had that kind of inspired those things? uh, I think the only lesson apparently was, um, oh my God, this is exhausting. Come home and have a drink. So, which is not a lesson that I absorbed because I'm, I'm not a drinker, but the, I think if anything, just the hard work thing was kind of obvious. No one ever talked about it. It was never really a topic of conversation. It was just, you know, mom is starting this consulting thing. Okay. Um, And she would complain about being a consultant because people pay her a lot of money to not listen to what she says, which she found unsatisfying. Um, And, but no, it, Ironically, it was just kind of in the air. Unlike friends of mine who grew up with entrepreneurial parents where they were learning how to look at a balance sheet and a P&L over dinner. Right. We never had that. Yeah. Um, yeah. My dad pretty much left work at the office other mm. than complaining about it. And right. my mom, pretty much the same thing. So it's weird that it happened this way. Yeah. Well, great family life. And, and again, grew up in the city, where, whereabouts? Uh... Bethesda, Maryland, to be Bethesda. exact. Right. Um, and, but then as entrepreneurial things go, where it really kind of kicked in for me legit was when I was 12 or 13-ish, I started doing magic. And uh-huh. I very quickly put together an act and was doing kids' birthday parties. Nice. And somehow nice. made a decent amount of money. And I look back and I, and I realized I was hired by some like big deal political people who had a lot of clout and money. And I never thought about it then, of course. I was 13, 14, 15. But but that was kind of interesting. And then when I was 16, I started street performing as well. The first thing that I did on the street was actually, it's a gimmick deck of cards that makes it look like you're an amazing sleight of hand magician. And the idea was to demo this thing and then sell the decks. And I bought like a thousand decks. And I very quickly realized that when I'm performing, the performance looked so good that people didn't get the feeling that they could do it too. They could do it themselves, right? So oh. then I went, all right, then I'm just going to write an act and be a street performer and work for tips, which <laughs> I, I vividly remember the first time I came home doing this, uh, my parents were aghast that I was, my dad thought I was essentially a beggar or cleaning up after hookers or something. <laughs> and so um, I came home and they were really not happy. And then I dumped like $300 worth of change and bills on the ground and they were ecstatic. Oh, you have been earning a living. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, And, and that, and I, that's basically what I did. I just kept doing street performing uh, through college. And, and then uh, somewhere in the middle of that, this is the end of this part of the story. I went to New York to be a street performer there. And within a couple of weeks, people were ripping off my bits uh-huh. And I, I went to this big deal magic shop and said, what do I do about this? And this one other very famous street performer said, write an act that nobody would dare steal. Mm. And so I came up with an act that involved some, a little bit of magic, some, some sort of, this is going to sound a weird phrase, comedy gymnastics. I'd have to explain it. It's much too long. Um, but the thing that got a crowd and kept a crowd and made the money was I was then at the end, I would walk on broken glass in my bare feet. <laughs> I had like a giant 50 pound <laughs> pile of broken glass. So I'd take off my shoes. I'd walk on it. I'd put some 200 pound guy over my shoulders and do the same thing oh uh, blindfolded. Uh, and then I'd have, I'd take off my shirt and lie down and have some people jump on me. And, oh and the interesting thing is there was only like two or three street performers in New York who could get a crowd that was that big when you had an act like that. Right. And so I went from making, you know, like 50 bucks a show to sometimes five, $600 a show. Wow. Wow. And Terrific. so, 
Yeah. That what was about all that blo- broken glass though? Didn't it have some damage done on you? No. <laughs> no. Um, and, and, you know, I got to tell you, the, the story of getting the glass was fun. When I came up with this idea, and it wasn't my idea. It was in a magic magazine. There was a picture of this old Chinese guy jumping off a step stool onto a big pile of glass. Uh-huh. And the guy who wrote the article asked him, you know, what's the secret? And the, the Chinese guy said, there's no secret. And I just took him at his word that it was all about physics, which it all is. Right. Spoiler right. alert. And yeah. I went around to the bars in my neighborhood and I said, hey, can I get like your empty beer and wine bottles? And they went, yeah, sure. What are you going to do with them? I went, oh, I'm going to break them up and walk on it in my bare feet. The broken glass. <laughs> oh, yeah, we we need to keep those bottles for inventory purposes. <laughs> they don't have anything to do with that. <laughs> so finally, I walk into this one bar directly across from where I live, but I didn't go into it because it was like this really high-end hoity-toity place. But I was out of options. And I said to the bartender, yeah, can I get the bottles? How come? I'm going to break them up and walk on it at my bare feet. And he just looks at me for about a minute and goes, sick. And then he hands me a big box. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. I love it. Well, I have to ask, how did this all impact your your schoolwork? I mean, were you a good student in school or Um, did did the the draw of the street performer (laughs) kind of sidetrack you there? Well, you know, street performing life, there's, you you don't have, uh, you have a really simple schedule. You work on Friday night, all day Saturday, all day Sunday, and then you're done. And, and if you don't want to work that much, you don't work that much because you're making a bunch of money. So it didn't really impact anything, um, at all in terms of schoolwork. And I, I hate to admit it, but yeah, I was a stupidly good student. <laughs> Doesn't surprise me. Actually, wasn't and- something funny? Wait, I, I, something I'd totally forgotten about. Um, when I was in college, my, I guess it was my senior semester. I graduated a semester early. Um, it might've been my, in my junior year. I can't remember, but they, in the undergraduate department, they had some pro- program where they took two people and, and put them in the entrepreneurial program of the business school in the MBA program. Huh. And I have no idea how or why they put me in that, but they did. And um, I did not do well <laughs> because um, it involved research and uh, you know, uh, which is not my thing. Uh, and I'm sure my partner who actually was an MBA student was very much unhappy with me, but, <laughs> love it. but it is well, ironic that, uh, that even though I didn't do well in that program, um, I did learn some interesting things in that program. And here I am, you know, 50 years later or whatever, 40 years later, um, having kind of proven that, yeah, I guess that is the path that I was going to be on. Well, you know, for obvious reasons, your comment about, uh, your work as a student are, are taken to heart. Duke is an undergrad in Columbia you know, getting your master's is no small feat. So tell me a little bit about choosing those schools and, and the direction you took. For university. <laughs> yeah, you're giving me way more credit than uh, I deserve for any of this. So first of all, you know, the thing when people say, oh, that's a good school. How'd you get in? I, go, I don't know. I sent them an application. They said, yes. What the hell do I know? Um, so for Duke, I grew up in, again in Maryland and my criteria for schools was pretty simple. Somewhere warmer than where I lived. There you go. Had to go south. Yeah. And so, and, um, I Duke seemed like a good choice and for whatever reason they accepted me. Um, and then Columbia. So after college, I guess this is another entrepreneurial thing in a way, uh, I was a stand-up comic for a living. Um, my last, in fact, I, the reason I graduated early was I had, I had kind of dropped some of the magic, started doing comedy. They opened a comedy club in Raleigh, North Carolina. I became the house MC. And the guy who booked that room booked 10 other rooms. And he said, you know, when you're ready, I can just give you a, a 10-week tour. And so I graduated mm-hmm. early so I could go on tour. And after a year on the road, I moved to New York City and was working at the clubs in New York. And similar to street performing, there's not a lot you can do during the day. Yeah. 
And so I had a lot of free time. And one of the guys who drove comics to certain one night gigs um, told me that he was applying to film school. And I went, that seems like a good thing for me. I like writing comedy. I like, you know, I've been an actor. Um, and so I applied to Columbia Film School kind of on a whim. And again, for some crazy reason, they admitted me. And um, that went very well. I won some awards as a screenwriter. And I, that led to my next entrepreneurial thing. I ended up inventing what became the industry standard word processing software for film and television writers. Because I was so frustrated with what existed then. It was getting in the way of my thought process. And I was losing ideas. And then um, my undergraduate degree is in cognitive psychology. And I just right. came up with this really, oh gosh, bizarre thing um, of understanding how what your your brain and your hands are doing when you're typing a screenplay. And I got rid of every extraneous keystroke that gets in the way of the creativity just flowing out of your brain. And um, then found programmers to turn that into something real. Cool, cool. And, and then did that. you sell that company or that business? Or? Uh, I tried to, and then the, I found out that the that there was three buyers or three partners who were looking to buy the company from me, guys who I'd known since I started the business. And in the middle of the negotiations, to make a long story very short, I uh, helped two of the partners discover that the third one had been embezzling from them. Oh. And uh, so that fell apart. And then the company kind of fell apart too. The product still exists and it may be getting resurrected uh, I'm waiting to hear from my programmer to see if I'm if that's true or if I've got to write it off and call that a loss. Right, right. Did you have a lot of employees in that particular? Uh, you know, I interest? think at the max we we were about twenty. Right, right. And pretty much the first company you were on, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. when you got in school, yeah, yeah. And, and tell us about the film career then. So, did you actually go oh, to do um, screenwriting? No, because what happened was it was it was actually two things simultaneously. One was finding out um, that there were very, very few good jobs, especially for sitcoms, or more accurately, there were very few sitcoms that I would have been able to write for where I wouldn't wanted to go home and vomit um, because the shows are so bad. Right. And those shows were pretty much populated by guys who were all Harvard Lampoon alum. Right. Um, and so that happened, discovering what the, what that world was like, uh, and then starting the software company kind of coincided. So I'd written some some scripts that had gotten a bunch of attention, but it seemed like a much safer bet to uh, start a software company than to become a professional screenwriter. Right, right. Well, you know, you became an athlete somewhere along the way because that has a big oh, uh, yeah. play well, into uh, what we'll talk about in a minute. So tell yeah. us when that started. When, when did you become a runner? Uh, well, I started my first athletic thing started when I was seven, where my parents were just trying to find a way for me to burn off some energy. And they kind of <laughs> a little bit me, of ADHD there, maybe, Steve. Uh, I'm too old for Ritalin. Uh, <laughs> otherwise, that would have been the choice. So they gave me like a catalog of things from the Jewish Community Center. And uh, okay. um, happily, the Jewish Community Center did not require Jewish people to be the coaches for many of the things, or that would have limited them tremendously. Uh, but uh, in fact, I'm not even sure it was all Jewish kids who practiced there. But suffice mm -hmm. it to say, I thought diving sounded like a good idea. So okay. I became a diver when I was seven. I quit when not I was a scuba diver, but a no, diver off a diving board diver. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, I quit when I was 11 because the pressure was getting to be too much for me. And then when I was 12 and went to junior high school, my, one of the three gym teachers was a, I think like five time national and three time world tumbling champion, um, an amazing gymnast, an incredible coach and a mind blowingly good teacher. 
And on the first day when the three gym got, teachers were introducing us all to what that program was going to be like, he just quietly stood up, stood behind the other two guys, did a standing backflip and then sat back down. And I went, yeah, I want to be that guy. So mm-hmm. I spent the next six years, well, I spent the next years, six years competing. When I went to Duke, I stopped competing, but I kept training till I was in my thirties. And when I landed twisted and uh, snapped a snapped a uh, my meniscus. But during that time in high school, junior high and high school, I was sprinting as well. But then everyone got in high school, everyone got taller than me, and I mm-hmm. stayed the same height. So I switched to uh, uh, pole vaulting and long jump, and then stopped after high school and didn't pick up sprinting again until I was forty five. Right, right. And active runner now, marathons. Do you oh, do? oh, oh, no, 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 no. Um, those things, I don't like driving 26 miles. So no, I, I'm a hundred meter outdoor, 60 meter indoor guy. I hear okay. there's a thing, there's things at the end of the tracks called, um, what are they? Turns? Is that what the turns? Yeah. <laughs> you don't like those. I don't have a GPS watch, so I can't do those. You prefer the straightaway. <laughs> I just run really fast in a straight line. Yeah. Cool. Cool. Well, you know, that's probably a good segue into your current venture. Now tell us a little <laughs> bit. Now is, is Fuel the World the company that you founded around Zero yeah. Shoes? Or give us a little bit of the impetus of that. Well, what happened was when I got back into sprinting, I was getting injured pretty constantly for a couple yeah. of years. And a world champion runner suggested that I try running barefoot to see if I learned anything. Now I'm not going to mm-hmm. suggest that people run barefoot. You are about to hear how it changed my life, but don't you know freak out. Uh, so I took off my shoes, went for a run with a bunch of other barefoot runners. And again, I run hundred meters. I'd never run more than a mile in my life um, and did not enjoy one moment of that. And on that first barefoot run, I was just so transfixed by the experience and just so curious about what happened if I changed my gait in various ways, if I ran faster, ran slower, ran the right. same speed, but moved faster or moved slower. I mean, just anything I could think of. And what, what were you running? Were you running on concrete? Were you running uh, on track, Everything, on grass? grass, concrete, yeah. uh, trails, wooden bridges. I mean, you know, you name it. It was, we're in Boulder, Colorado, and it was just whatever we could run on. And yeah. at the end of this first run, um, which I could have kept going, but it, just the group decided to stop. I turned to someone who had a, who did have a GPS watch and I said, how, how far was that? And she said, oh, that was a um, little over 5k. It's like, sorry, sorry, what? Wow. And I was blown away. Um, and, but the most interesting part was I ended up with a big blister on the ball of my left foot. Hmm. Now I've learned that many people in that situation would have said, oh, see, this is nonsense. I got a blister. But for whatever reason, I thought, huh, how come my right foot's okay? Yeah. Right. And so my second barefoot run where I've got a gaping hole in the ball of my left foot, I thought if I can find a way to run that isn't hurting, then I'm probably not doing the thing that caused that problem to begin with. Mm. So I'll give it 10 minutes. If it doesn't work, I'll try again after the healing occurs. And nine minutes and 30 seconds of agony later, um, in one step, everything changed. Mm. And what happened was my form changed because frankly, I was paying attention to the good foot and wondering what it was doing correctly. And then my brain just kind of figured it out, which is what brains do. They don't, if you, if you keep putting yourself in a position of mild discomfort, your brain's going to find a way to get you out of it. Right. So what happened is uh, my form changed and my running got faster, easier, lighter. My injuries went away. I be, that's when I became a master's all American for the first time. And I wanted that barefoot like experience, mm. but I wanted to be able to get into restaurants without arguing about whether it's legal. It is, by the way. Um, and my wife wanted me to come home without getting my dirty feet all over our white carpeting. Right. So I made a pair of sandals based on a 10,000-year-old design idea, and people started asking me for pairs of their own. So I made, I don't know, 50 pairs or so. 
And, and did you do this from like old tires or? Uh, I just found some rubber from a shoe repair place. Yeah. Okay. And some cord from Home Depot, yeah. and just you know put it together. And um, after about the fiftieth pair, a guy said to me, "I've got a book coming out on barefoot running, and if you treated this little sandal making hobby like a business and had a website, I'd put you in the business." Or sorry, I put you in the book. Right. So by that point, I because of my software company, I'd become an internet marketer. So I'd been. I've been an internet marketer since 1992. I'd built hundreds of websites um, when he gave me this opportunity. And I rushed home and pitched this incredible opportunity to my wife, who assured me that I was a complete idiot and wouldn't make any money. It was a waste of time. <laughs> and so I promised her I wouldn't do it. And then after she went to bed, I built a website. So um, that's how it began. And we, now this is back in 2009? 2009, yeah. 2009, yeah. Yeah. And so I needed a name for the product and the company, and I came up with Invisible Shoes. Interestingly, I couldn't get InvisibleShoes.com. I got InvisibleShoe.com. Mm. And when it became very clear within six weeks, in fact, I said to my wife, uh, when she kind of growled at me the next day, I said, this will be a good case study for a search engine marketing business that we had just started as well. <laughs> and uh, I said, I'll own all the keywords I care about in three months. Then we'll see what it, what it does. Um, and I was wrong because it only took me six weeks. Mm. And at the six-week mark, it became clear this was going to be a real thing. So we incorporated as Feel the World, Inc. Feel the world. Um, yeah. and, then, uh, and then about two years in, I, or a little less than two years in, I met a guy who was uh, the former VP of marketing for a multi-billion dollar fitness company. And he, the first thing he says when he sees my sandals and knew that we were called Invisible Shoes. He said, I can see them. I said, yeah, but it feels like you're not wearing anything. He goes, I can see them. <laughs> so uh, to make a, again, a very long story, very short, that's when we rebranded as uh, Zero Shoes, X-E-R-O Shoes. And where did that come from? Uh, okay, then you're giving me the medium length story. We hired a marketing agency that was uh, well recommended. They was all people who had escaped big agencies. They started a small thing. It was just three people. And uh, part of it was the rebranding. And they came up with a bunch of names, all of which were, I think the technical term was horrible. And <laughs> one was, I'll spell this for you. You have to tell me, uh, um, in fact, what? All right, I'll spell it first. X-O-I-C-S. What is it? Oh, Zoics. Yeah. That's what I'd say. Maybe. I don't know. <laughs> said, I said, don't know how to say it. Don't know how to spell it. We're an internet-based company. That's not going to work. Right. And they tried to justify it. And I said, if you have to explain it, it's, it's not the right one. That's Trust right. me. No, exactly. So a day or two later, I'm, after track practice, I'm sitting in my car and I'm thinking, I like the X thing. Yeah. How can I use the X thing? And then I zero popped into my head. And I came yeah. back for our next meeting. I said, we're going to be XER zero shoes. And they're like, I don't know. Like, yeah. I just checked it with a friend of mine who's been a advertising agency guy and copywriter for 40 years and he loves it. So I'm going with his opinion. There you go. And, uh, you bootstrapped or, or sandal strapped this. Uh, <laughs> Very good. Was it, was it your own money? Did you go yeah. out and get venture capital? How'd you kind of just, uh, thank you. Credit cards with 0% interest yeah. and zero balance, zero cost balance transfers. Right. Right. Cool. Never brought in that, any outside money from outside. Um, about when was this? Maybe I can't remember, a year and a half in, two years in, I'm not totally sure. We were at a birthday party for a 70-year-old friend of ours mm -hmm. who, as we were leaving, said, you know, what are you up to? I said, well, we're trying to raise some money. He said, oh, you should meet my neighbor who runs a small family office for some billionaires. And we had a really great chat. 
um, he said, well, we mostly invest in like uh, cash flow based real estate projects. And I said, oh, like uh, parking lots and laundromats and things. He goes, yeah, exactly. But, you know, he says, we keep about 10 or 15% for some high flyers. I said, oh, so you're a Nassim Taleb investor. And he says, how do, how do you know Nassim Taleb? And I go, oh, my wife and I had done some day trading and long story. Um, so we just hit it off. He was an athlete, um, loved what we were doing. And he, he had to petition very, very hard for us to get, I think maybe it was a hundred thousand dollar line of credit wow. Wow. that to make a, to abbreviate that story over time became a million five. Right. So that was our first, uh, our first in, investment of all, basically just debt capital. Um, yeah. uh, it was a, and it was expensive money too, but we were growing so quickly that it really didn't matter, frankly. Right. And, and you didn't give was, up equity too, which is a nice No, thing. we didn't give up any equity. And then some a couple of years later, we got an SBA loan for, I don't remember how much that first one was. Um, I, I can't, I, I don't remember, but that was pretty entertaining. We had a stack of paper, literally two feet high that we had to go through for that. It was yeah. pulling teeth, putting them back in and pulling them out again to get right. that loan. Uh, but that, that worked out well. And that was again, just uh, debt finance. So we stayed debt financed until 2017 where we did an equity crowdfunding raise and raised a little over 1.1 million from um, people who loved what we were doing and gave away about four and a half percent of the company for doing that. Yeah. Cool. When did you know you had a real winner, Stephen? Uh, day one. Yeah. Because we launched with a freaky little do it yourself running sandal kit in the end of November and the first sale we made a day after I launched the website was to somebody in Minnesota where there was two feet of snow on the ground. <laughs> and so I thought, okay, we're on to something. And then yeah. uh, some little time later, my wife and I are walking in downtown Boulder and a pack of teenage girls run up to us and they look at our shoes and go, Oh my God, those are sick. Where do you get those? It's like, all right, we're onto something. Yeah. Super cool. And uh, tell us a little bit that you're comfortable with, with regards to where the business is today, you know, number of employees, sales, and maybe some of those endorsements you've been picking up. Um, because we did the equity crowdfunding raise, we're an SEC reporting company. So I can only report things that are publicly uh, documented. And you can find all these, by the way, at zeroshoes.com slash SEC. That'll redirect you to the Edgar website where all those things, those yep. uh, SEC filings are. So in 2021, we did uh, $33.6 million net, wow. uh, uh, over 4 million EBITDA, but I don't remember the exact number. And now, uh, well, I can, again, I can do the end of the, well, let's say we're somewhere between 60 and 70 employees then, and that's where we are now. Yeah. Um, and we've had, it's just been amazing. The people who are responding to what we're doing, my, Lena has a great line, which is there's no reason to start a shoe company. There's enough of them all already. Lena is your wife. Yes. Um, and co-founders. Yeah. And, and so in the business, right? Exactly. Yeah. So there's no reason to start another shoe company unless your shoes change people's lives. Mm. And we have tens and tens and tens of thousands of reviews from people saying that, uh, that we've improved their life in many ways things that they couldn't do before they're doing now or, or just finding comfortable footwear for the first time. Cause we make sure they're not just running shoes, right? They're walking shoes. Casual. Walking we make casual and performance shoes, boots and sandals right. that people do use for everything from taking a walk to climbing Kilimanjaro to running ultra marathons. Right. Um, and so it's been really fun. The people who show up out of much to our surprise wearing our shoes, uh, Ewan McGregor, um, just the other, just two days ago, Billy Eilish was photographed wearing our shoes. Don't know how she got them. Um, this morning we found out someone who's going to be on survivor in the middle of September was wearing our shoes on the show. Really? Um, Tony Horton, the guy from P90X is a, a good friend now and big fan of ours. He called me, tracked down my personal 
cell phone number and called me on a Saturday night or Sunday uh-huh. night. And I looked at my caller ID as to my wife, this is Tony Horton, the guy from P90X. She goes, if he's so famous, what's he doing calling you? Like, good, good point. So um, I, let, I let it go to voicemail and then I checked and it was him and I called him back and we really hit it off. And he's been a, a big supporter of ours. Um, and uh, um, we've got NBA players, professional golfers, professional football players, professional baseball players. I mean, it's really, it's been very entertaining um, watching how people are really just gravitating to what we do because the experience of wearing our shoes is just undeniable. You put them on and they have a wider foot-shaped toe box, for example, instead of squeezing your toes together. And they're really, really lightweight. People have, have said to us they've gone to bed still wearing their shoes because they forgot <laughs> to put them on. <laughs> Love, it. So, um, Love it. Uh, so yeah, it, it's the experience that sells it. And I'll give you a number related to that. Over 40% of our sales are from repeat customers. Wow. Which in footwear is really unusual. Yeah. Well, are um, they are they doing both recreational as well as the yeah. performance shoes? Is that yeah. The way the brand has grown from the product side is because people tell us what they want next. Right. So right. when we were a do-it-yourself sandal kit company, people would say, that's cool, but I'm not going to make my own. So I came up with a way of doing a ready-to-wear version of the same product. That's yeah. great, but I don't like you know that design. Can I get something with a different kind of design? Yeah, we can do that. That's cool, but what do I do when it's cold or winter or I have to go to the office and I need shoes. So in 2016, we launched our first closed-toed shoe. That's great. But what about a running shoe? So we did that in 2017. That's great. But, and then it just, you know, turned into now 30 plus styles. So how do you keep that dialogue with your customer base? Is it social media? Do you have folks that, you know, kind of spontaneously come out to you? Do you have focus group panels? How do you do that? Um, All of the above and much, much more. The the biggest thing is that we, um, I never wanted to be the face of the brand. Um, because I thought that at some point, if we're going to sell this thing, they don't want me attached to it, but it didn't work because I would make a video showing how to make a do-it-yourself sandal kit. And it would literally be my face for five seconds saying, Hey, let me show you how to make this. And then people would recognize me and talk to me. And I went, and I know as a marketer, people do relate to humans. So we decided to kind of have a mom and pop flavor to what we were doing and be very, very accessible. I send an email or an email gets sent out. And for some people, this will be shocking to hear automatically that when people opt into our list, I send them an email saying, just want to let you know we're real people here. And um, in fact, here's my personal phone number and give me, give me a call if you have any questions. Three times a week, tops, I get a phone call where the conversation sounds like this. Hello, this is Stephen. Oh, my God. And so um, (laughs) people don't believe me. They don't believe it. Yeah. No. So, and we also knew that providing good customer service is not really hard considering what people are used to. So having a, a dedicated, smart, and large customer service team is very important. And then on social media, we're super, super active. And again... Um, part of it happened because the way Facebook worked in the early days to open a business account, you could only do it if you already had a personal account. So I am linked inexorably and inevitably and forever to, um, to the business account. So people tag me all the time and they start conversations with me personally and I jump in on those. And I, the other thing about customer response. Well, yeah, that's the thing. If people are talking about you, you want to be part of the conversation, whether it's good or bad. And so we're hyper, hyper, um, participatory on social media. And my favorite thing is when someone complains that, you know, they emailed us and we haven't responded in a month. We go, yeah, here's where we responded immediately after you got the email. It must've gone to your spam folder. And they go, oh, oops, sorry. (laughs) They go back and say, oh yeah, that's right. Actually, sorry. They never say, oh, sorry. Um, (laughs) Just to be clear. (laughs) So, 
so and then we um, we also just really encourage it when people become customers. We give them the opportunity to become part of what we call the inner circle, mm. where we let them participate in product um, ideas, picking new colors for products, um, some fun marketing things. So great, in, great, in, 20, in 2009, the book Born to Run came out, which really catalyzed this whole natural movement, minimalist, barefoot running thing. And I used to go in and go to bookstores and I would put business cards in copies of Born to Run. So then I made 50,000 bookmarks all about us and I sent them to the people in our inner circle so they could go to bookstores and put those in copies of Born to Run or any other book that seemed relevant. And so, you know, we just get people involved in doing things that are fun and let them know that we're real people on this end. How many consumer comments, suggestions you guys think you get a week or a month? Oh God. Um, well, considering that we now have like 52,000 reviews, um, we hundreds, hundreds a week. Yeah. Awesome. Cool. What's been some of the biggest challenges you've had, Stephen? Everything. Um, so when uh, I'll tell you this story, seven months in, we, we had met some guys who'd been in footwear for 35 years Hmm. and they took us under their wing a bit, helped us with some, with some logo design and found some sourcing for us in Asia for the products that we were starting to make. And they said to to Lena and me, we really believe in what you're doing. This natural movement thing is the most important thing for footwear. And we believe in you. Uh, And we would start this business with you, but we've been in footwear so long. We're not stupid enough to try and start a shoe company. (laughs) And so, and our response was, yeah, we're hyper-optimistic and naive. That's the way things get started. So away we go. The, the biggest, let me think about this for a second. The, in no particular order, big challenge number one is that we've been growing so quickly year over year and we couldn't raise real money because going to banks, they're looking at your historical numbers and giving you money based on history. And we need right. to look a year, two years out. So that was really, so finding money has always been the biggest challenge. Yeah. Um, the second one is making things is hard and making footwear is really hard. Mm. There's just a lot of humans involved in every part of the process and making our footwear is even harder because it's so different than the way they make traditional footwear, nor, quote, yeah. normal footwear, that we have to retrain people uh, on every step of the process. I was going to ask you do, you, do you have a lot of former shoe industry folks in the company or is um, it better to come do, without that, without that, uh, you know, we do experience? now yeah. or we, uh, so Dennis Driscoll is our chief product officer hmm. and we, he joined us 10 years ago yeah. and that happened. Um, so coincidentally, luckily, crazily, he's walking his dog, um, which normally his wife does. A friend of ours is walking his dog, which normally his wife does. The dog started hanging out together. So the guy started talking and our friend says, Hey, what are you doing? Dennis said, Oh, I'm the chief product officer or head of global product design at Crocs. And our friend said, Oh, my friend, Stephen and Lane have a shoe company, which was totally not true. We had a, we're selling sheets of rubber and string company. So, it was during the kit days. Yeah, exactly. So, but Dennis said, you know, here's my phone number, pass it on. And I sat on it for months yeah. and then finally just sheepishly called the guy and we had lunch and what was supposed to be a half an hour turned into four hours. Wow. And I said, I'd love to work with somebody like you someday. And he was just turning 60 at the time. I said, but you know, like maybe someone 30 years younger trying to get their feet wet. He goes, well, what about me? I mean, I think what you're doing is amazing. I said, um, I don't think I can afford you. He goes, I just retired. I went, and you're hired. (laughs) I love it. Yeah. So Dennis has been in the business for 45 plus years. 
And uh, so he was our, he was really the thing that spearheaded it. And we still had just, there were, for whatever reason, and honestly, I literally can't tell you why. Um, we had a lot of people who really believed in us and what we were doing Jeez. from day one. Yeah. And as we met more people in the footwear industry, they just kept saying, how can I help? And they helped even seeming competitors. They were just, everyone was really, really helpful. Yeah. Most of the shoes made in China or do you have U.S. manufacturing um, as well? It's literally not possible to make our products in America in the same way that it's literally not possible to get domestically made versions of the devices we're using to have this conversation. Right, right. So is it mostly coming from it, Asia, it, South Asia? Yeah, it's it's 99, 98.5% of performance footwear is still made in China, and that's where we are. Right. And when people say, oh, well, you can go to Vietnam, it's like, guess what? All the materials are still coming from China, and all the people managing everything are still from China. Yeah. And unless you are a big company and you own your own factory and all your own employees, um, there's it's literally full. There's nowhere that we could manufacture um, outside of right. China right now. How's your leadership style changed over the years, Stephen? If I don't all. have a leadership style. <laughs> I, I mean, I'm, I'm barely joking about that. Or I guess, let me say it this way. If you want to describe my leadership style, it's, um, if you want to be rude, you could call it laissez-faire. If mm-hmm. you want to be more accurate, it's I stupidly work on the assumption that everybody is um, competent and as committed to this as we are. Right. And happily, Almost all of our team now is like that, um, but we've had uh, a number of people along the way where I assumed that was what they were, but they proved uh, themselves not to be, and so we've gotten rid of those. Here's a weird thing. Um, when I was in film school, I was on a film set with the director, Tony Bill. He was shooting a movie called Five Corners with um, Jody Foster, and after a week on the set, I said to him, I'm amazed by your set. I've been on a lot of film sets. Yours starts on time. It ends on time. No one ever yells at anybody and everything gets done. How do you do this? And he said, I've been doing this for 40 years. And basically, I just kept firing people until I ended up with all the guys who could do what I wanted. And here they are. (laughs) That's one way to go about it. Well, it's not that he was, you know, being mean about it. It's like um, some people. It's a culture thing. It's a culture thing. It's a competence thing. It's It's a personal thing. We've had people leave us during COVID because they had to spend time with their extended family that were all somewhere else and they couldn't work remotely. Um, it's, you know, it's tricky. I mean, anybody who runs a business knows the most difficult thing is always the human part. What do you look for when you're looking to hire people and invest in them to, to join Zero Food? I tell them that we only want people who beg us to work here. Mm. I'm like, knock down the door repeatedly and tell us that they need to work here. Yeah, and passion. Um, just that they believe in what we're doing and they want to be part of it. And then I also look for people who have uh, an entrepreneurial spirit, which is tricky because I've many times brought people in, shown them how to do what I do, and then they've immediately been smart enough to leave and start a small agency. Right. Uh, so so there's a balance there. I'll say, ironic, this is, um, how do I want to put this? Well, one of the things that I look for with certain positions, um, like our our director of e-commerce, He's someone who fits the bill perfectly. He had worked with agencies. He had worked with other e-commerce companies. He started his own company and it didn't go as well or as easy as he wanted. And he didn't no longer had the risk tolerance for uh, striking out on his own. So someone who's tried to do it like multiple times, if they try to start an e-commerce company and it just didn't pan out, but they have the skills, they're my guy or woman. I also ask for an honest answer to the following very strange question. Yeah. I say, give me at least three reasons why I shouldn't hire you. 
Mm. And they have to be legitimate reasons. Right. And people are often stymied. And I got, I'll give you an example. If it was me, I would say, if you're looking for someone who's organized and gives you reports and documents and flow charts, I am not your guy. <laughs> if you need someone who's not going to uh, make your HR people's head explode by the things that come out of his mouth, I am not your guy. And uh, what's the third one? Uh, and oh, if you expect me to not tell people that I think they're doing something wrong, um, when I see that they're doing something wrong, in my opinion, again, I'm not your guy. Right, right. And if people can't respond to that with real answers, I know they don't have the self-awareness that we really need yeah, to yeah. deal with a growing company. Gee, I love it. Well, as I said, we're just about out of time. So okay. I'm going to always ask one last question and that's, you know, what kind of career and life advice would you give someone that's listening? Maybe they're, <laughs> you know, 10, 20 years younger than you. Maybe they want to be an entrepreneur themselves and, uh, you know, run their own company. What would you tell them? Uh, get a government job with a pension instead. <laughs> Why is that? Well, um, I'm at the age now where I have a lot of friends retiring with their government from their government jobs or right. other jobs with pensions. They literally don't know how to spend all the money, and they're having just a blast with all the free time. I've never, I have not had in the last 13 years a um, what's the word, vacation, 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 vacation. No, I don't think that's it. Um, <laughs> and so, uh, you know, I, up until recently, I never had. Uh, Benefits again. Another word. I'm benefits and insurance. <laughs> but benefits. Are, benefits. Yeah, these words are very confusing to me. <laughs> so, um, so when I say get a government job with a pension, I didn't know when I was 20 that there were jobs that I could have gotten that would have been very satisfying for me, right. but not striking out on my own. Yeah. And if my saying that makes anyone think, oh, yeah, maybe I should get the right kind of job, then you definitely should just get a government job or any kind of job job that pays well. If you're a real entrepreneur, there's nothing I need to tell you because you will undoubtedly or undoubtedly pursue your most likely stupid idea. And I say most likely stupid idea because anyone who's been an entrepreneur for any amount of time, most of our ideas are kind of stupid. And then if you're uh, really, really lucky, and I'm, and I'm being totally legit when I emphasize the factor of luck, um, then you'll stumble on something that you can make work. And that where the macroeconomic situation does not uh, um, take precedence over you and all of your, your efforts and everything you're trying to make happen. So there, the best thing I can say, actually, I, I, I will give one legit piece of advice. If you're going to start something, figure out the fastest, least expensive way to prove that people that you've never met will give you money for what you're doing. And then prove that there's a big enough market to spend your time pursuing it. Yeah, great stuff. Steven Shoshin, uh, CEO of Feel the world and it's zero shoes. Thank you so much for sharing your story into the corner office. Pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Into the Corner Office with Brant Hanley. We hope you enjoyed hearing our guest CEO story as much as we did. If you want to hear more CEOs reveal their journey into the corner office, please subscribe via iTunes and tell your friends and colleagues. For more information about Brant, Resource Options International, and the mighty middle market, visit www.goforroi.com. We look forward to having you join us for our next episode. 